Good morning, church. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, I will conclude the reading by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and we invite you to respond. Thanks be to God. Today's reading comes from Hebrews chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 6. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Genesis chapter 6. By Noah, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, you guys can grab a seat. Thank you, Augie, for reading our passage this morning. And good morning. Good to see you all. Thank you for uh, joining us. I haven't had a chance to meet you. My name is Ian. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here and excited to uh, open up God's word for us. Uh, happy Valentine's Day um, to all of you. No better way to celebrate than talking about the destruction of the world through a flood, right? I don't know what you expected, but buckle up. That is where we are going to be today. Uh, but before we take a look at the faith of Noah today, uh, I do want to acknowledge that we have a number of people who are not here this morning because they are volunteering uh, at a camp that our church uh, sponsors called Track Camp, Team Reach Adventure Camp. And it's a camp that is specifically uh, oriented towards uh, teenage boys and girls who are in foster care, who typically uh, would not be able to have a camp experience. And so uh, we have a big heart for the fatherless and the motherless here at the King's Church. We invest lots of money and volunteers and resources into uh, caring for orphans, and so we're really excited uh, to see what the Lord is going to do this weekend. So before we jump into the sermon, I wanted to pray, and I want to ask you to pray with me uh, for all of the volunteers who are out there at camp, and then specifically uh, a number of teenage girls who are there who have had just really hard uh, life experiences that they might be met with the love of Christ this weekend. So would you take a moment, and would you pray with me as we uh, ask the Lord to bless uh, that camp? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for the chance to gather this morning, and we thank you for uh, those volunteers who are serving at Track Camp this weekend. Uh, Lord, we pray for uh, all the, the girls this weekend who are going to be there, who are in need of a reminder of the fact that you love them, that you see them, that you are a father to the fatherless. And so I pray that our uh, volunteers who are there would be strengthened for the task that's ahead of them this weekend. I pray that uh, these girls would encounter the gospel, they would encounter the love of Christ through this experience that they have. 
And Lord, we pray that you would use this to draw them closer to yourself. I thank you for those who are serving. I pray that you would uh, really encourage them this weekend. May they be full of the Spirit. May they be just the aroma of Christ as they seek to love and serve on these girls. And I pray that you would accomplish your will in and through this camp. Lord, we pray now as we turn our attention to your word and uh, spend some time examining the faith of Noah, that you would stir up within us a greater faithfulness, an obedience, a faith in the things that are not yet seen, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond to the goodness and the sweetness of the gospel of Jesus. So I pray that you'd be in over and through our time now. We ask that all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. So as we turn our attention now to Hebrews 11, we are looking at the faith of Noah. This is fitting for me since I just had a son and we uh, named him Noah. So I guess I'm ready to preach this sermon a little more now than I was before. Uh, but Noah's story is a familiar one, isn't it? I mean, even if you didn't grow up in church, you are likely familiar with the story of Noah building an ark, bringing all the animals on to survive the great flood. I've noticed, though, as a parent, that children's Bibles absolutely love this story. Those of you who are parents, have you noticed that? I mean, like half of the children's like, Bibles out there have this as the cover art, don't they? When you got Noah and all the animals and the rainbow, it's a real popular thing. And it's not just children's Bibles. I mean, parents seem to love this too, right? I mean, we paint nurseries with this theme and we get animals up on the wall and we talk about the rainbows and what that means. And I mean, after all, you can buy little Noah's arcs and you can play with them, right? You can take the roof off and you can put all the animals in the different compartments. It's almost like we communicate that this story is some kind of zoo cruise, don't we? But, now before, I'm, I, I know, I'm, I'm a bit critical sometimes. This is indeed a story of God's faithfulness. It is a story of God's deliverance to his people. But, it's also a pretty sobering story, isn't it? I mean, did you listen to what Augie read there from Genesis chapter 6? It's a terrifying account of God's judgment to wipe out his creation and start afresh. You see, the flood... Was God's judgment upon a sinful humanity, and I think too often we miss this emphasis. In fact, we tend to actually miss the emphasis of water in the scriptures. You see, we live here in Florida, so maybe this skews our view a little bit, but uh, we often view water as a place of fun, don't we? The place where we go and play, we go to the beach, we go swimming. Some of you probably have little bodies of water with chlorine in them in your backyard, right? But in the scriptures, water has a much different emphasis. It's often associated with judgment. The sea is symbolically the place of darkness, death, and chaos. That's why, by the way, if you're ever reading the Bible and you get to the end of the story in Revelation 21, it says, maybe you've noticed this and you've wondered what's up with this. It says that God's going to make all things new, and then the sea will be no more. You ever wondered why that's there? Well, it's not because there's going to be no beaches in heaven, though I suppose that might be the case. It actually has to do with the fact that judgment is now over with. Chaos, death, and darkness is fully and completely finished. That's why when God makes all things new in Revelation 21, the sea is no more. You see, the story of Noah and the waters of judgment that come with the flood is a story of enduring faith that survives that judgment from the Lord. So in order to grasp what that means for our lives today, I think we need to look at that faith of Noah and consider what is it that saved him from the judgment of God, and how can we, too, today be saved from the coming judgment that awaits us in the future? Today, here's our main idea. Here's what I believe we're going to see as we look at Hebrews 11 and Genesis 6. Faith 
believes God while living in a sinful world so we are saved from the coming judgment. Faith believes God while living in a sinful world so we are saved from the coming judgment. I want to see the faith of Noah over three points. I want to talk about faith that believes, faith that condemns, and then lastly, faith that saves. Let's begin with faith that believes. Look back with me at Hebrews 11, verse 7. The author here says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So the text begins by telling us that Noah was warned by God himself about events as yet unseen, talking about the flood. And this verse is meant to serve as a little bookend to the very first section of Hebrews 11. So you go back up to verse 1, the author tells us that faith is the conviction of things not seen. That faith believes the unseen more than what you can see and feel and touch. And the commentary here is that Noah is believing that this flood is coming, though he can't see it. And because of that, he constructs an ark. Now, if you go back to Genesis and read the context, the emphasis on Noah's faith may puzzle you. Because not once in Genesis does it say that Noah had a faith. It just emphasizes that he was obedient. He took the warnings that the Lord gave seriously. But... As we've already talked about, it's impossible to please the Lord without faith. It's impossible to truly obey him without having a heart of faith. So how do we see that faith of Noah back in Genesis? I want to note three things. If you go back to Genesis 6, the first verse that Augie read for us was verse 8. And verse 8 says this, But Noah, in contrast to the rest of the created order, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We have to be careful not to moralize the story of Noah. You see, we can read the description of Noah in Genesis 6, and we can think, man, he's just a righteous person. Right? He obeys everything that the Lord said. It says that he's blameless. He's an upright guy. Now, Genesis certainly highlights his obedience, especially in contrast to the world around him. And we should absolutely affirm, yes, Noah is a righteous man. He is morally upright. He is obedient to everything according to the end of Genesis 6, that the Lord commanded him in regards to the ark. But verse 8 tells us that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You know what that word favor is in the Hebrew? It's our word for grace. Noah, before anything else in Genesis 6, had found grace. And as one Old Testament scholar has said, whenever someone has the testimony of finding grace, they're saying that there is nothing about themselves that could have earned that. That's the nature of grace, isn't it? Anytime you have found grace, guess what? Grace has actually found you. Noah was found by grace. He had favor in the eyes of the Lord. And because grace had found him, that's the beginning of his faith. Secondly, Genesis 6, 9 tells us that Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. You may have noticed that we skipped Hebrews eleven five in this series. It talks about Enoch. Really, the reason why we skipped it is it'd be a very short sermon. We have one verse in Genesis that says, Enoch walked with the Lord and he was no more. And then Hebrews basically reiterates that. So hey, there's Enoch. He had faith. He was no more. But guess what? Noah described in the same way, isn't it? It says Noah walked with God. What does that mean? It means he had a daily, ongoing communication with the Lord. He had a daily relationship 
that was consistent and steady with God. Just as Enoch walked with God, so too did Noah walk with him. And it's in this daily walking with God that he receives the warning about the flood. It's in his daily communion with the Lord that he is told of the coming judgment. It's the place where he obeys the Lord and is called blameless. He gives him his word and he walks by faith, trusting that it is true. Remember, we've made this point. Hebrews 11 is not about a blind faith. Noah does not have a blind faith when he's building the ark. He has a very specific faith. Yes, he's putting his faith in something unseen, but it's in the word of God given directly to him in the context of ongoing relationship. You see, faith is not wishful thinking. It's not blind faith. It's concrete. It is reality. It's trusting that if God said it, it will happen. So Noah had found favor with the Lord. He had received grace. He walked with him daily. And then thirdly, this produced in him, according to Hebrews 11, a reverent fear of the Lord. A reverent fear. This is a kind of fear that's a combination of respect and awe and trust. Think of it this way. Maybe you had that one teacher growing up that had a big impact on you. Or maybe it was a coach if you played on a team. Right? They were maybe brilliant. They were really great at their craft and what they did, but they also didn't put up with any nonsense. Right? So you're in their class, and you respected them, and you wanted to learn what they, what they were saying and how they taught or what they were teaching you on the field. And when they spoke, you listened from a place of respect, reverence, and a little bit of fear. Right? That's how Noah stands before the Lord. Respect, honor, awe, fear. You see... This is describing the inner life of faith in Noah. It's easy to see the exterior obedience. I mean, he builds an ark, right? The internal life of faith, though, is that life of reverent fear of the Lord. He wasn't just doing this out of some sense of duty. He wasn't doing it to check a box. He was doing it out of humble worship to God, out of a place of trust. You see, Genesis might not use the word faith, but that's the life of faith, isn't it? That's the life of faith. Noah lives that. And this faith led him to do something that would be viewed as utterly ridiculous by the people around him. Just to set the context here for a moment, Noah is in the middle of the ancient Near Eastern desert. A lot of scholars argue that this area maybe had never seen rain before. I mean, in an impending rainstorm, in a place that maybe had never seen any water like that before, that would flood the earth, that seemed impossible. But Noah has the faith to look around and say, yeah, the sun is shining. Yes, the birds are chirping. But it's not going to be that way forever. He refuses to be defined by what he can see and instead is defined by what God says is reality. This is not Noah believing in God in a general way. This is Noah believing God. And that is faith. And by the way, this ark, it's huge. It's massive. It's a cruise ship. I'm assuming most of you just watched the Super Bowl, right? The Ark, if you're looking at a football field, is about a football field and a half long, same width as a football field, and maybe three or four stories high. Maybe you ventured to Kentucky to see the actual replica. That's an actual thing. Sometimes you gotta love Christians, right? We did that. <laughs> you can go check it out, I suppose. And it takes Noah 120 years to build the Ark. We want to talk about faith in the unseen. 
Imagine the cost to Noah to be building something for 120 years. We don't even know what gopher wood is. Like, what is that? We don't actually know. Scholars are like, eh, something special. Noah had to buy all of that. He had to acquire that, build an ark for 120 years, and he's willing to embrace the cost of all that man. He fully obeyed the Lord. Well, how does he do that? How can he have the faith to do that? Well, grace had found him. He was walking with God, and he was doing so in reverent fear. That's the pattern of faith. Is that your story? If you're here and you say, I put my faith in Jesus, you might not be building an ark. I hope you're not, actually. But is that your story? Has grace found you? And listen, in Jesus Christ, grace is offered right now, in this instant, to every single one of you here in this room. Have you found grace? Has grace found you? And if that's true, are you walking with God? Is this a day-to-day reality for you? I love what Charles Spurgeon says in the way that only Spurgeon can say it. He says, notice first that Noah believed in God in his ordinary life. Before the great test came, before he heard the oracle from the secret place, Noah believed in God. We know that he did, for we read that he walked with God. It's a great thing to have faith in the presence of a terrible trial. But the first essential is to have faith for ordinary, everyday consumption. Faith will not come to you all of a sudden in the dark night if you have shut it out through all the bright day. Faith must be a constant tenant, not an occasional guest. Is faith a constant tenant for you? When we talk about finding beauty in the ordinary here at our church, we're talking about a constant faith a consistent day-to-day walk with the Lord. Because grace found you, are you walking with the Lord and are you overcome with reverent fear? Are you worshiping him? Are you listening to him with respect? Are you trusting that his way is better than your way? You see, Noah is showing us what faith looks like. It's an example and an invitation. That is faith that believes. But more uncomfortably, the text tells us that Noah has a faith that condemns, right there in the middle of verse 7. It says, by faith, by this, he condemned the world. What does that mean? Let's actually start with what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Noah is going around and yelling and scolding people from some place of superiority. Sometimes we read the Old Testament, we get this idea of these like crazy prophet figures who are just wagging their finger at a sinful people and telling them to get their act together. No record of that in Genesis. That's not the picture we get here of Noah condemning the world. Instead, it's his very act of obedience, by faith, in building the ark that is pronouncing judgment upon the world. You see, Noah is setting himself against the world. There's a contrast that is taking place. Second Peter says that Noah is a herald of righteousness who is pointing the way forward to what is right and acceptable before God in the midst of a world that wants nothing to do with him. And again, presumably, the size of this boat wasn't just supposed to be Noah and his family that get on board. The invitation was surely extended to others, but nobody listens. You see, the world viewed him as a crazy person. 
would have viewed him with ridicule and mocking. Building a boat for 120 years in the desert will draw that from people. But Noah's act condemned the world. You see, faith, true biblical faith, it will set you against the world. The way of faith is not the way of the world. There ought to be a contrast there. The world lives for what is seen, while faith lives with a conviction of the unseen. And listen, it's one way or the other. You can't have your feet in both places. There is one way that pleases God, and there's another that draws condemnation. Now, generally speaking, I don't think we like this. Anyone uncomfortable? We don't like this. I think there's a few reasons why. The first is maybe the most obvious. We just like other people to like us, don't we? It's something naturally built within us. So often we crave and want the approval of man rather than the approval of God. You see, brothers and sisters, we all have that reverent fear that Noah has. The question is, who are we really fearful of? Are we fearful in awe and respect of the Lord, or are we fearing man more than that? The fear of man is a powerful force, and it will draw us away from the life of faith we're seeing in Hebrews 11. Faith can mean standing alone, and I mean literally alone, against the world. God has always preserved a remnant, even if it's one man in his family, as this story will tell us. I mean, nobody else came with him. Nobody believed his message. Noah would not have been on the conference speaking circuit tour. He had zero converts besides his own household. But yet, his faith condemns the world. He stood alone with a fear of the Lord more than a fear of man. The Puritan Thomas Manton says, the people of the world did not tremble till the waters began to rise, but Noah trembled when God did but speak. That's how we fear the Lord more than man. That's the first obstacle I think we have. Another reason we don't like this is that we just like to downplay and minimize sin. I'm sure the people of Noah's day realized that they had some sin issues, but much like us, they probably thought, yeah, but it's not that bad. It's not worthy of that kind of judgment. But remember the context in Genesis. We didn't read it, but back in Genesis 6-5, it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. I'm not sure how more emphatic the Lord can be. Every intention was only evil continually. Around Genesis 6, we see rampant sexual immorality and violence taking over the world. This is a bad situation. But here's the thing. We never think things are as bad as they actually are, both out there in the world and in our own hearts. So what do we do? We ignore warnings. We ignore warnings from the Lord, just like they ignored the warning from the Lord through Noah in his day. The flood was an act of God to simultaneously bring about a death and a cleansing, a renewing of the entire created order. And the reason for this was sin, was because of evil and wickedness. God takes sin way more seriously than we take sin. The flood account is a sober warning to us. Our sin and the sin of the world is never something just to shrug our shoulders at. It's a big deal. And you see, closely related to that, 
if we fear man more than the Lord and we tend to minimize sin, is this reality. Judgment, from our experience and our perspective, is often delayed. It certainly would have felt that way in Noah's day. I mean, 120 years. At what point do you think the people were like, yeah, sure. I'm thinking like year two, <laughs> right? But Noah, for 120 years, says, listen, flood's coming. God's judgment is coming. It's coming. And they ignored it. Judgment feels delay. And the same thing is true today. You see, usually the consequences of our sin, they aren't necessarily immediate, are they? You see, you crossed that line once and it didn't seem to hurt anybody and nothing seemed to go wrong, so it becomes easier the next time, doesn't it? And then the next time, and then the next time. It can lull us into this numbness to the things of God. It can sometimes even create a callousness in our hearts towards sin. Where we should feel pain and conviction, now we feel nothing. What's going on in Noah's day is still a warning for us today. But I have to warn you, judgment may feel invisible. It may feel delayed until it's not. I think we view people who talk about judgment and the end of all things with skepticism, don't we? And there's a lot of legitimate reasons for this, right? I'm just old enough to remember the whole Y2K thing. Remember that when everyone thought like everything was gonna shut down, the world was gonna end in the year 2000, right? We tend to view people who talk about the end of the world like people who took Y2K way too seriously, right? And now it's even worse because you can just hop on social media or YouTube and you can get some kind of crazy prediction anytime you want. But here's the thing, that's not the way the Bible talks about it. If you read the parables of the New Testament closely, Almost all of them talk about judgment, and almost all of them have an element of surprise built in. The people did not expect it. They did not think it was coming, and that's because judgment is often delayed. Jesus actually draws a direct connection for this in Matthew 24. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, what were they doing? They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Sobering thought, isn't it? I mean, how could these people be caught unaware? Well, they carried on as if judgment wasn't really coming. Eating, drinking, marrying, got the crazy dude out there building the boat. We're not paying attention to him, right? We got our own stuff going on. And then Jesus says they were unaware. And it was their own fault. They did not believe the promise of God, but clung instead to what they could see. They presumed they were fine. And listen, if they thought they were fine after being warned for 120 years, how much more now for us today? And some 2,000 years since Christ has come and made that promise. Do we treat the promise of God that he is coming as if it's invisible, as if we always have more time, as if it's delayed, or do we have a faith like Noah? There's actually an extended, the, the New Testament when it talks about Noah is really interesting. It has a consistent theme. I actually want to read a long section here from 2 Peter 3. He's drawing this idea of this delay, this feeling like judgment is not coming, and he connects it right back to the flood. 
Second Peter 3, beginning in verse 3, says this. He says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. See what Peter's doing there. He's saying, listen, just as they scoffed back in Noah's day, they're scoffing now. By the way, he wrote that in like 60 AD. You think people are scoffing now? But then listen to what he says. But... Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see the patience of God. God was patient in the day of Noah. He's even more patient to us now, isn't he? Why hasn't this happened yet? Why is judgment delayed? Well, it's not because God's ignoring what's going on. It's not because he's just up there busy with other things. He's not slow to fulfill his promise as we might view in our own short-sighted, impatient timetable. Now, Peter tells us he is slow and he is patient so that more might reach repentance, that all might reach repentance. Maybe that's you in this room today. Maybe it's you watching online today or this sermon later. The time is now. Yes, judgment feels delayed, but it is coming. And the Lord has graciously tarried so that more might reach repentance and faith. See, Noah's faith condemned the world. He warned them what was coming. Today, when we put our faith in Jesus, we're doing the same thing. And what stands in the gap while we wait for that delayed judgment to come is faith. Faith is how we live. Faith is how we endure. It's how we warn the world around us and invite people in. We invite people out of condemnation into salvation in Jesus. So to appreciate how that works, we need to move to our final point, and that's a faith that saves. Faith that saves. Look at the last part of verse 7. Hebrews 11 says, by this, by faith, he condemned the world and he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. How do we escape the coming judgment? Well, we escape in the same way that Noah did. Hebrews 11 is giving us two pictures, two illustrations to play with. The first is the ark itself. Now, that may seem obvious, but the ark is actually a beautiful picture of the gospel to us. It's full of rich symbolism that points us to the truth about Jesus. Noah is saved by getting into the ark. Not by looking at the ark, not by studying it, not by examining his work, but by getting into the boat. He and his family are brought safely through the waters of judgment by finding their refuge within. And in fact, Genesis tells us that after Noah obeyed the Lord in faith, and he gets in the ark, it's the Lord himself who shuts them in. And they were safe inside. 
the waters of judgment, the storm that beat against the ark, all did not affect their safety inside of it. Brothers and sisters, we too are saved from the coming judgment by getting into the ark ourselves. God has given us an ark from the rising waters. He has shut us into the place of refuge in his son, in Jesus Christ. He is the one who bears the brunt of the storm. The waters of judgment are beating against him so that we might be brought safely through as we find our refuge in him and him alone. The New Testament frequently connects the flood story in Noah to baptism in the, in the Christian life, which is, by the way, why I love that we do baptism by immersion, right? It ain't a sprinkling that's happening there in Genesis. It's a deluge, as Peter says, right? And this makes the baptism of Jesus a pretty remarkable thing, doesn't it? I mean, have you ever thought about why does Jesus get baptized? After all, John the Baptist is giving a baptism for repentance, and Jesus, he doesn't need to repent. He has no sin to repent of. He is perfect and sinless. That's why John the Baptist is horrified, by the way. Jesus shows up. He's like, whoa, whoa, I'm not baptizing you. Right? John gets it. He's the sinless one. But yet, Jesus gets baptized. Why does he do that? Well, it's not for his own sin. What Jesus is doing is by going under that water in the Jordan, he is taking on the condemnation and the judgment of the whole world in himself. What's happening in the flood? God is judging everything. Jesus, in his baptism, goes under the waters of judgment to, be in, to identify with God's judgment in our place, on our behalf. And then when he comes out of the water, it's a picture of his victorious resurrection. His baptism is a picture of his impending death and rising from the tomb three days later. And in his resurrection, what does he do? He offers new life. He offers new creation. How does Noah know it's safe to, to begin to think about getting off the boat? He sends out the dove. What happens after Jesus comes out of the water? What descends? A dove. The gospel is telling us that there is life out of death. There is salvation available despite condemnation. Noah gets in the ark. Are you in Jesus? It's the only way to make it through. But when we're in Christ, he is our refuge. He is our safety from the storm. As Colossians 2 says of Christians, we have been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through what? Through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You see, we have an ark that has passed through the waters of judgment and has come out victorious on the other side. That's the first picture. Second picture is this, that Noah is an heir of righteousness. An heir of righteousness. Now that might seem like arbitrary language to tack on here, but it's beautiful. It's perfect. Think about it. How does an heir come to be in the position of receiving an inheritance? Well, here's the thing about heirs. They don't earn that place, do they? An heir does not become one because of their own abilities, but instead because of their relationship alone to the one who is guaranteeing the inheritance. An heir is someone who gets rich based on somebody else's work. And that's the gospel, isn't it? That's how Noah became an heir of righteousness. Yes, he had faith. Yes, he obeyed. Yes, he built the ark. The Lord shut him in. The Lord saw it through. It is because he was faithful that Noah now becomes an heir. And that's also our story. If you are here and you put your faith in Christ, you have become an heir 
of righteousness, a gift that comes from the finished and completed work of somebody else who is richer than we could ever dream of being rich. And he's given that to us. Brothers and sisters, a judgment day is coming. The only thing that endures that day is faith. Faith in the one who has already risen victorious over the judgment of God. The one who bore our condemnation in his place. And that means grace has found you. Grace has found us. We can walk with the Lord and we can do so with a reverent fear that lives a life of obedience. Are you getting the picture? That's the only way. And that's extended to everyone today. So are you in the ark? Are you in Jesus? If not, there's still time. The Lord is waiting patiently that all might reach repentance. That's our invitation today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have made a way for us. You've given us the offer of salvation, the offer of, of Jesus. In our place, he stood condemned so that we might be heirs of righteousness. What an incredible truth. Lord, may we not grow stale to that. As we live in the midst of a sinful world and as we ourselves are still a people who struggle with sin, lift our eyes above what we can see for the promise of the unseen. Jesus, we trust that you are at work. We trust that you are going to carry us safely through the waters of judgment. Lord, I pray that we would live our lives in worship and gratitude because of that. God, if there's somebody here in this room who is not putting their faith in you, I pray that this would be an invitation to them, that they would see the kindness of Jesus and they would turn in faith and repentance to you and to you alone. Lord, help us to respond in worship to this good news, we pray in Jesus' name.